Welcome to The Bibliophiles. I'm your host, Beth Steffens. In this episode, I had the pleasure to chat with John Bircher, whose debut novel, Three-Fifths, I recently rated Four Flames. During our conversation, we discussed everything from the passing narrative to gentrification and from the novel's complex characters to its heartbreaking ending. Here's that conversation. Hi, John. Welcome to The Bibliophiles. Thank you so much for joining my podcast. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. How are, how are you and your family? Are you staying safe and healthy? Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we can't complain. Everybody's, everybody's happy. Kids are, kids are entertained. Everybody's working. So it's, uh, even though we're going through collectively tough times, uh, we're, we're doing all right here. So. And you, you said you live in Philly. How are, how are things in Philly right now? Uh, pretty good. I mean, we're, we're not, uh, in the city proper. So, um, but, uh, yeah, again, can't complain. Good. Good to hear. All right. So I, I just read your, your debut novel, Three Fifths. I loved it. I thought it was a beautiful story. Um, so let's go ahead and dive in. Um, I just, first question I have is where did the idea for this, for this novel come from? Did it, have you always had this idea or was there one moment that just clicked for you? No, it started actually a long time ago, uh, probably about 20 years ago. Uh, It was when I was a student at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, I had been taking a class in uh, black cinema, and we saw the movie, um, uh, why am I blanking? Uh, Imitation of Life, which was based on on the book of the same name. And it was the first time I had been introduced to what's known as the passing narrative, books about passing. Um, and it really sparked my interest, especially being someone of, of mixed race. So to my, from, from my own research, I, I didn't see that there were a lot of books of that kind. Uh, and I had been really into not just books, but, but film and cinema and television and all kinds of things like that. So uh, it sparked the idea for a screenplay. Um, and so I, I wrote it, it got shopped around to a couple of production companies actually, which was pretty cool, but, uh, I was young and my writing wasn't, uh, all that great. And so it just never really went anywhere. Uh, but the idea had always been there. And after spending some time working in healthcare, which was not really my thing, <laughs> went back for my MFA and used the story idea as my thesis. Cool. So I just read, um, The Vanishing Half by mm-hmm. Bernadette, which is also mm-hmm. about passing and I... Like, I'm a little embarrassed how ignorant I was about this uh, narrative of, of passing. Have you, what other books from that narrative have you read? Uh, so Nella Larson's Passing, I mean, uh, of the same title, is an excellent, excellent book. Um, not an easy read, but uh, it's a short read, but it's still, uh, it's, um, it's hits home. And then Walter Mosley's Devil in a Blue Dress is also a great example because it's, while it's not, the entire book is not a passing narrative, there's a, a central um, character. Uh, who does pass. So those, those were some of the ones that were influential to me when I first started down this path. When I was uh, first looking up, up your book, Three Fists, I had read, like a lot of people said that this was a crime novel, which to <laughs> me, it did not seem like a crime novel. Like that's a much smaller narrative of a larger narrative. Did you have mm-hmm. any intentions of making it a crime novel? <laughs> no. Uh, it, I mean, it's uh, certainly no problem with it being identified that way, but it's, it's, uh, it's definitely more crime adjacent than it is, I think, a crime novel. I, I just set out to write a book about characters who have to navigate terrible things that happen, and uh, a crime just happened to be the inciting incident. Mm-hmm. So you, you wrote this book before 2020, but I read this book in 2020 after the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Elijah McClain. So when I was reading it, it felt so relevant and like 
this is happening today, even though your book was written in 1995. Did you intend for it to sound and to feel so much like the present day, even though this was 25 years ago? Well, no, just because the the unfortunate circumstance of our country is 25 years ago is no different than now. And Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, you know, was no different than 25 years before that. It's just, we have more access to the information. We have have more access to see the trauma that's being inflicted upon our communities. So it's, um, yeah, I, I get a lot of uh, how timely this book is. And I'm like, well, without any, without any kind of ego behind it, it's timeless because it's, this is, these are the circumstances in which we live. Mm-hmm. It also feels like with COVID because we're all home, like we're watching the TV all the time, we're consuming the news all the time. Mm-hmm. It feels like this time is different maybe. And the social conversations may actually catalyze change. Do you feel the same way or do you feel like we're, we're just repeating the same thing again? I mean, it is very cyclical, which which goes to to show that we're even even with change, we're still not removing the root problem of racism. But I do think that things are each, each iteration does seem to be a little bit different. It, it seems like there is more conversation occurring, but more even more is going to have to happen, and, and it has to be conversation, right? It has to be at a level where we're not just we're not just shifting racists out of power, but we need to have a conversation that helps to actually eliminate those kind that kind that way of thinking, which is a huge and uh, unenviable task for anybody. But um, it's to avoid this cycle that we seem to keep being in. That seems to be part of the solution. How do you think books can help help people or drive people to have these conversations? Specifically fiction or, or both fiction um, and non-fiction? Yeah, I mean, it, really any book, but I, I found, I mean, I read a lot of fiction, so I found mm. for me that like reading fiction just gives me these different perspectives as a white woman that I never had before. So how do you think fiction can do that? I believe fiction tends to be more intimate. I mean, e- even the best narrative nonfiction that, that can really strike an emotional chord is still not usually... And well, I shouldn't even say that because that that paints nonfiction with too wide a brush, and you can't really do that. But for me personally, as a fiction writer, and because I read more fiction than nonfiction, I find that there it feels easier to walk in someone else's shoes when you when you're sort of um, suspending your disbelief and and allowing wow. yourself to inhabit these characters. So um, uh, that's how I think it, it helps to spark those conversations. You, I mean, you sort of said it yourself. You if you read outside of your own experience and uh, allow yourself to live in that world, at least within the 250, 300 pages that, that of that world, um, it can really change the way you think about things, or at least start to plant seeds of that change. And so this kind of ties into identity, which is a big theme in your book. Um, mm-hmm. So as as, so in the book, the characters, both main characters, so Bobby and Aaron, they feel like, you know, they have to hide who they are or change who they are because of what society says they should be. As a black man, have you ever felt like you had to hide parts of yourself or change who you were to be accepted? Um, never hide, but often trying to figure out how to navigate the spaces that I'm in. Um, because, uh, you know, I was never quite sure how I was perceived. I, you know, there, there's the, there's the phenomenon of code switching, which I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's it's about you know changing your dialect depending on your audience. Um, you know, before before I shaved my head, before I lost my hair, I had uh, like sort of longish hair, 
And so, uh, you know, I was often confronted with the questions, well, what are you, you know, just uh, always being judged or, or uh, people trying to figure out who I was just based on how I looked. So, yeah, I mean, and that's a part of, uh, I think, anybody's narrative uh, of a person of color. It's you're always trying to figure out how to navigate spaces, find out where you're safe, if you're safe, what what kind of ideologies do these people hold when you get past the the common small talk. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a constant back and forth. So I was reading, um, you did an interview with, I want to make sure I get it right, the LA review of books that you, you love developing characters. So you make both Aaron and Bobby so complex. Why did you decide to make Aaron, who is kind of the, uh, the antagonist of the story, why did you decide to give him all of these questions with identity too and make him a very complex character? Well, because villains that are one, I mean, it's even, I don't even know if it's necessarily, uh, if I call him a villain, because it, it sort of paints him with a, a one note brush. And I guess that's what I was trying to avoid is I, I didn't want him to be one note. You know, if I just, if I, if I only made him this uh, horribly evil person with no redeeming qualities, that's, that's not realistic. I mean, even the people that are uh, uh, capable of some of the most heinous things have done one nice thing in their life, um, you know, but depending on, depending on the news, sometimes they'll focus on that and mm-hmm. not on the actual horrific stuff they did. But the, the, the truth of it is that, um, you know, most, most villains quote unquote are the heroes of their own story, right? They don't, they don't think they're doing anything wrong. They, they, they matter of fact, they think they're in the right. And so uh, as uncomfortable as it was to, give those qualities to Aaron if I, if I wanted him to resonate and particularly if I wanted to hold up a mirror to readers, that had to be the case. Mm-hmm. What was the hardest part about developing both him and Bobby knowing their complexities as characters? Uh, I think probably just going into those uncomfortable spaces about making somebody uh, who, who holds harmful ideologies uh, sympathetic it, it might have been. Sometimes it was less. It was less uncomfortable creating it. But then, what was more uncomfortable was getting the reaction from readers that was like, "Oh, I felt really bad for Aaron." And I'm like, "Oh, great, I guess." <laughs> um, you know, like I, I'm glad that 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 I layered him enough that people could have that emotion. But at the same time, like he's still a pretty awful person. Mm-hmm. You know? You don't want to hear that a character you created people felt bad for. But um, yeah, I think it's just going to going to spaces, trying to put yourself, trying to see things through their eyes can be uncomfortable. But at the same time, I feel like in real life, that's how we get to the heart of uh, changing those people's ideas. Because if you can understand it without condoning it, uh, is a bridge to conversation to try and help change some of those ideas. Did you receive any like opposite feedback from readers about like, why did you give Aaron? And I don't want to call them redeeming qualities, but kind of humanize him in a way. Did you get the, the opposite pushback in any way? Surprisingly? No, I thought I would. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I really anticipated a lot of that. And no, uh, I, I, it was mostly um, that, that people were, they, they were surprised that some people were surprised that they felt that way about him. You know, they, they wanted to despise him, but they, they, they couldn't always. So yeah, no, I, I was, I guess, I, I guess I was fortunate in that regard. Um, but no, I, I never got any of that. I think it's also always interesting when I read a book and, and this setting is, is 
just as much of a character as the characters themselves. And I kind of mm-hmm. feel that the same way about the setting in your book. And in that same interview you did, you were talking about how you were inspired by a neighborhood in Pittsburgh that was culturally thriving, but was in a lot of ways demonized and stereotyped. Mm-hmm. So how do you, how do you feel like we can get around that without the solution just being gentrification? Because I feel like that's <laughs> often the solution. It's not even a solution I'm using air quotes that we find is we just start gentrifying the area when that's not what these neighborhoods need at all. That's a good question. It's an important one. I, I don't know that I have an answer. My, my instinct though would be to, to stop fearing a neighborhood because it's predominantly black. You know, mm-hmm. It's like, it's just this, this equation of predominantly black means low, low poverty, uh, violence, and all of these other things is just asinine. And so I, I, I think people need to overcome that fear, a, a, approach that neighborhood as they would any other to, to get to appreciate the richness of the, of the culture there. I, I think that's a huge step in, in doing that instead of going in and changing it <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, and changing the face of it and, and uh, essentially eliminating that culture or, or pushing it out. Um, to me, that would be the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, I'm from Missouri, but just, I lived in the New York area for six years and I first lived in Brooklyn my first mm-hmm. year. So that was something that, that I saw. I mean, I knew nothing about New York before I moved there, but like I was part of that gentrification when I moved there and I could see like the line of gentrification moving further and further away from the city just within, you know, a couple of years of me living there. So, mm-hmm. and same thing in Jersey city, I see it there too. So it's something that I'm, I'm I think about a lot is how do we, you know, support these communities without just pushing people out because that's not the solution. Right. So what was the hardest part of writing this book for you as your debut novel? You know, I I don't know that there was a specific, it it was probably more the the process of trying to get published that's harder. I, I tend to steer away from the idea of talking about how hard writing is because I feel like it limits the access to writing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, like I, I had a conversation with another friend, uh, who's uh, a writer and it was one of these, we were talking about one of these memes that was like, it was a, or it was a, it was a cartoon that was like a series of like my writing process. And it was sort of a joke about like procrastinating this or, or like just struggling to get their, their, their ass in the chair. And, and, and like, I mean, I, I get that, you know, of course, writing is a challenge. It's it's not it's not an easy thing to do, but I feel like the focus on it makes it seem like not everyone can do it, and, and especially for marginalized communities, when it's already hard enough to get published or, or hard enough to get an agent, I feel like the focus on how on how difficult the process of writing itself can be is is sort of limiting. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't focus on too much about how hard that part is. So for me, the, the most challenging thing was just the road to publication <laughs> is, you know, mm. because uh, a lot of it is uh, a, sh- a lot, there's a lot of shifting of the goalposts, right? Like you get an agent and you think, oh, that's it. Um, uh, it's like, I'm just, now I just wait until the book offers come pouring in and it's great. And it's nope. And then you got to move one more step down the road. I mean, you know, finishing a book is hard enough as it is then getting the agent, then getting, getting a, a, an editor interested and then making sure the whole editorial house is interested. It's, it's a long and involved process that 
uh, and rejection is a big part of that. So that's, that's probably the toughest part. Do you feel like you were discriminated against in any way with, with finding an agent, you know, getting your book out there? <sighs> yeah. It's so hard to say because it was, I, I, I mean, I, I'm sure to some extent there were, because I got a lot of, I just couldn't connect with this type of thing which is sometimes veiled language for that kind of stuff. But at the same time, I don't want to, there, there was also when I was submitting the, the book obviously needed work too. I mean, that's true of everybody's everybody always needs to go through some amount of revisions or things like that. So I don't, I don't want to cast all blame on that type of thing, mm-hmm. but I, I do feel like in some instances there were the, 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 I just don't get it or I just don't connect to it type of thing. Um, certainly felt like sort of thinly veiled, uh, bias. Yeah, I can understand that because even if, if you can't necessarily connect with exactly what's happening, how can you not feel feel sympathy for these characters and you know at least feel some kind of connection to the story, even mm-hmm. if you can't connect to the characters? Right. So I would be remiss if I did not bring up the ending to your book, and I don't want to take anything <laughs> away. Um, but it's it's devastating. I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> and shocking. Um, was that always your plan to have a devastating end to this plot or did that change throughout the process? It did change throughout the process. Um, the more, the, the deeper I got into where they were going as a result of the inciting incident, the, the ending eventually became inevitable as far as I was concerned. Like there, there was no, uh, yeah, I'm trying to avoid spoilers here too. Um, <laughs> That, to me, there was just no other way for for that situation to end. If if I was going to be true to life, which 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 I was trying to be, um, yeah, I know it's a little grim, <laughs> but um, you know. It, it, but to be honest, I, I I think having just talked about this recently with somebody else, there there was um, there is an upward arc. I mean, it does look as if it's going towards uh, a, a different ending, but real life doesn't often work out that way. Yeah. I've, I found I'm maybe a weird reader and like, I, I like when the ending is not always happy because mm-hmm. like that's just reality. Don't, you know, don't pin it up in a nice bow at the very end and make it all nice and pretty. Cause that's just not real life. So even though it was hard to read, I was glad <laughs> that, that you made it a, a tough ending for me. I'm the same way when it comes to books and, and movies too. Like, uh, um, I, as a reader and as a viewer, I, I tend to feel cheated when things are wrapped up too neatly. Um, mm-hmm. I, I usually like either, either not, it doesn't necessarily have to be an unhappy ending, but, but some ambiguity uh, at the end too, to, you know, leave, leave me to my own devices to figure out what I think might've happened or where I think this may go as opposed to everybody just rides off into the sunset. Mm-hmm, exactly. Um, what, so what, what are your favorite books, your favorite writers? What do you typically read? Oh man, I'm I'm actually all over the place. Um, I I always she's if she ever hears or sees any of my podcasts, she's going to be sick of hearing her name. But uh, <laughs> Jasmine Ward is is still one of my all time favorites. I just I love the way she writes. I love the I love the richness and depth of her characters, um, and her prose just reads like poetry in some passages. Mm-hmm. So she's she's a favorite. Um, Matt Johnson, who's a, a f- who used to be a Philadelphia-based writer, is also uh, one of my favorites. Um, Loving Day is probably one of my all-time favorite books. I love Baldwin's fiction and nonfiction. Um, I'm still trying to work my way through all his nonfiction stuff. It's just incredible. Um, Ernest Gaines' books are really good. 
uh, Colson Whitehead, uh, Paul Beatty. Um, yeah, I mean, I could go on for a while, but uh, th- those are some of the people that really uh, are like are at the top of my bookshelf. David Joy, a uh, huge fan of his. Um, I really love uh, how he, he can make the grim seem also really poetic. I'm a big fan of his. Yeah, I just read, um, I just finished The Colossus of New York by Colson Whitehead. So this is the, oh, yeah. third, the third book of his that I read. Did you read The Nickel Boys that he published last year? Just finished it last month and it was, uh, I mean, it was a gut punch. It was so good. Yeah, I love his writing. Everything he, he has written so far. So it's my goal to read every single one of his books. Same here. I'm not, I'm not quite there yet, but I'm on, I'm on my way. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so I also read that you, so you, and you talked about this earlier that you used to work in healthcare and you were a clinician before you became a writer, right? Yeah, I was a physical therapist for 10 years. So what inspired you to, to become a writer and how did you make that career? Because that's a really big career change. <laughs> so my, my undergraduate degree was in English. Um, and so I've, I've always loved storytelling. I mean, ever, ever since I was a kid, I thought I was going to either, either write comic books or draw comic books or, or write movies or write books or so it's stories have always just been, um, my big thing. But, you know, as I was getting close to graduating, it was pretty clear that I, I, I didn't know what I was going to do with an English degree. Uh, and both my parents were in healthcare and physical therapy had really become sort of a, a booming career at that time. I liked physical therapy. It was, it was interesting to me. And, and I was, you know, I think I was pretty good at it for the, the time that I was doing it, but it just, uh, I, it just never felt like what drove me, you know, like it, it wasn't like I never got up early in the morning and was excited to go to work. Like that just wasn't, wasn't my thing. And as I kept, you know, as year after year after year, it just, it just got to be a grind as opposed to something I enjoyed. And, and my wife was really supportive and knew how much I liked to be creative and said, you know, maybe you should, maybe you should pursue that and go after it. And so I found that, uh, found a low residency program for an MFA that I, cause I, I knew that I had forgotten everything that I had learned about craft and mechanics and all that kind of stuff. So I, I knew if I was actually going to make a run at it, I needed to, to educate myself again. So that's that's what I did, and and, and three fifths ended up being my thesis. So are you are you full time writing now? Uh, well, sort of. I I, um, I work as a freelance editor, ghostwriter. Yeah, those I do those things sort of as the day job. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I finished a second book, um, starting to outline a third, and working on some other projects. I have a, a working with an artist on potentially a graphic novel. Um, so I've got a got a couple irons in the fire. Awesome. When can we expect the second novel? As soon as somebody says they want to buy it. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, my agent's got it out to, to editors now. So hopefully somebody will like it as much as they like the first one. We'll see. Yeah, I hope so. And so just one last question. You mentioned earlier that this book started out as a screenplay, correct? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Any hopes of still writing a screenplay for it and selling it as a book or, t- or sorry, as a movie or oh, TV show? Of course. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, but no, nothing on that front yet. But, um, well, I, sh- I say, yet. Yeah, that's a hopeful yet. I don't, I don't <laughs> know if it's going to happen, but yeah, I, I would love to, to, for that to happen. And if I, if I got to get a crack at the, the writing at it even better, but that doesn't always happen. So. Well, that would be very exciting if we could see it on the, on the big screen. Cause I think <sighs> it would be a, a perfect story for that. Uh, thank you. I, w- I would love for that to happen myself. <laughs> thank you so much for doing this. This was a really great conversation. And when your second book comes out, I'm going to read it and we'll do this again. Oh, that'd be great. I'd love to.
Cool. Well, thanks again. Um, stay safe, stay healthy. It's a week right now. So (laughs) thanks a lot, Beth. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bibliophiles. If you want more, be sure to check out my blog, Big Little Literature. And if you want to hear today's music from Evan Schaefer, check him out at soundcloud.com slash Evan Schaefer. See you next time, book lovers.